right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon so that we might do this thing even this evening. Thank you for revealing to us your grace and your love in time. This was most evidenced, of course, on a cross 2,000 years ago where you sent your Son in our stead to cancel out that debt against us. How very grateful we are. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message, and may it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 106. It seems we've done enough review, and the Spirit wants us to finish up this series uh, pretty soon. Uh, It's been 106 parts. Uh, so we will be accelerating out of the mine shaft uh, to get back to our official working framework regarding salvation and sanctification perspectives. Remember, that's been the good work that the Spirit's had us on now for at least half of this series, getting us to begin thinking about what God thinks about saving us uh, and what God thinks about sanctifying us, even though we do speak to these things in tenses and phases, if you would. So just remember the following principles, please, uh, as we sort of emerge from this deep dive as of late. For starters, what is sanctification uh, fundamentally to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time unto God's will. Again, to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time unto God's will. As Jesus said, your sanctification will include trials. Is that AC still on? It's the back. All right. What a day. Don't worry about it, Scott. As Jesus said, your sanctification will include trials. Luke 21:13. Trials will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. This is something that Jesus said. Trials will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. A lot of people, Christians included, don't think about that. That it's an actual opportunity to testify, to be a witness, if you would. And so this dovetails into a lot of what the Spirit's been teaching us as of late from the pulpit regarding sanctification proper. Sanctification is the result of a faith being being put into action Testing, therefore, is designed by God as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities by grace through faith. This goes for salvation and sanctification. You are witnesses. And we looked at these passages of Scripture on Sunday, Acts 10, 34-43, 1 Timothy 6, 12, and Hebrews 12, 1. Again, the point on the board, sanctification is the result of a faith being put into action. Testing, therefore, is designed by God as an opportunity, and that's the emphasis here as of late, as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities by grace through faith. And so, in other words, God's not going to give you something, give you faith without it being tested. The only, one of the real ways that He glorifies Himself in time is by giving us something by grace, such as faith, and then putting it to the test and seeing it 
actually uh, glorify him in time, pull through for the believer themselves. And so uh, that is um, one of the ways that he goes about doing things. So again, is designed by God as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities by grace through faith. This goes for salvation and sanctification. You, my friends, are witnesses. To, sum up, to summarize the past few lessons, I'll simply add to one of the more critical points from this past week. And he's been really harping on this particular topic, that your life has context. When we read our Bibles, we see others' lives, and they had context. That's why we aren't to make false doctrines out of case studies that we read in the Bible. We're supposed to read the accounts of individuals in the Bible to understand that there's a certain application of clearly stated theology in Scripture, but we're not to reverse engineer it, so to speak, and say, well, since Job's wife was this way, or since Job was that way, or since David was this way, or since Solomon's was that way, we're going to reverse engineer it and say, everyone who acted like David or everyone who acted like Solomon was this way. That's not the case at all. Those are case studies. We are not to make doctrines out of case studies. And we're not supposed to make doctrines either out of our our own lives and say, well, since this is my experience in life, this is doctrine. No, you might do one thing and be blessed out and another person may do the exact same thing out of God's timing and be cursed. So context means everything. And that's what the Bible teaches us if we're paying attention. Context means everything. Your life has context. We're talking about sanctification. Being, What does it mean to be set apart, to be made holy for God's purposes? Well, what does it mean to you? That's the big question. It doesn't matter what it means to me necessarily as far as you're concerned. It matters what it means to you. What does it mean when God says He's going to sanctify you personally? Well, your life has context and only you know. That's what He's been trying to teach us. So your life has context. By grace through faith... You've been created and saved. Just think about that. These are whopper. Uh, they sound simplistic, but these are the sum. Remember, we're accelerating out of the mind shaft, not mind shaft. <laughs> Inside scoop. We're accelerating out of the mind shaft, right? We're just collecting things that we've learned down in the weeds. These are the summary statements, and they're massive. They're impregnated with all that good work of how many lessons? Dozens. Your life has context. By grace through faith, you've been created and saved. Humbly live in this truth. In gratitude, contently and diligently serve your master. Love. I could probably end tonight's message right there as a summary of our last few months, frankly. But I won't because I'm enjoying the propane. (laughs) I might go an extra hour. Return on the burners. By grace through faith you've been created and saved. Humbly live in this truth. In gratitude, contently and diligently serve your master. Love. Search for the truth on the board, my friends, for this is your sanctification. Seek and you shall find, so says the Lord of all. And never be satisfied with faking it. Never be satisfied with faking it. For even Satan and his demons 
are wonderful counterfeiters. Never be satisfied with faking it. Romans 12.9 Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Let love be. If love's the great litmus test, let it be without hypocrisy. Don't fake it. If you don't have that love that you so earnestly desire, wait for it. Go to the throne of grace and ask for it. Say, what's the deal, Dad? Why don't I have this thing that I read so often about? Why I want it so much? He might just say, well, listen to that bald guy. And he's trying to tell you there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of obstacles in your way that need to be removed so that you can just first perceive, see clearly. Isn't that what Ephesians 5 is all about? See it all as truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you can get it right. I mean, what good is understanding anything in the Bible if you can't see it correctly? If you've got some other clouded lens looking at Scripture, especially when it comes to love, if there's one word, one emotion in this world that has been completely hijacked by the world, it's love. It's absolutely love. How many counterfeits are there on that particular topic? Most of you could raise your hand and say, been there, done that. Just rest in the fact that sanctification takes some time. Relax, knowing that God doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, one of the overarching principles as of late is very simple. Just be yourself. Don't fake it. If you don't, uh, if you don't have the faith you'd like to have yet, or if you look in the mirror and you say, geez, my faith is waning, or it's just not the way it ought to be, you can't fake it. Be yourself. If you discern that you lack faith, then do what the Bible says you ought to do. Go to God in prayer and ask for that which you do not have. That's what the Bible says. If you discern you don't have a certain faith and you earnestly seek it, then go to him and ask him. Maybe he's just, there are parables about this. The persistent, remember the person, persistent friend. Give me something to eat. Go away. My kids are asleep. Give me something. I'll give it to you. Now just go away. The whole parable is about asking and being persistent in prayer. That's what the apostles did when they realized they lacked faith. They appealed directly to the source of it. Luke 17, 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. If we don't have it, then you increase it. You're the source of it. You're the creator. You're the God, man. You're God. Then increase it. And that's what... um, You know, I've been teaching on that for years now, that humility is aggressive. That's what I mean. You go confidently, boldly, aggressively to the throne of grace. I can't come up with my own faith. I can, but I'm going to be operating in human strength and human power. The only one that can give me faith is God. So who do I go to? I go to the wellspring of faith. I go to Him. And I go boldly. That's what it means to be aggressively humble. And while doing so, you must ask yourselves, as a word of caution, 
if your motivation is truly good, or you're just asking for some human form of strength, for there is an infinite difference between the two. For example, do you want faith in yourself, let's say, so that you can do better at work or measure up in your social life? What's your motivation for asking anything from God? As you'll soon read on Saturday uh, in the latest blog, what is it that you are asking for? Some of us have to step back and ask ourselves this question. What is it that I'm asking? Okay, so I'm going boldly, but what is it that I've been asking for? What is it that I seek? Am I seeking things that are consistent with His will, that have parity with His heart? What is it you're asking for? Some of you are wiped out, beat tired. I can tell right now by looking at you. I mean, it's wonderful to see you, but, you know, some of you don't look so good. (laughs) So you go to him for strength. Presumably, some of you will. But the bigger question is, Strength to deliver you from what exactly? So you go to him for strength, but strength to deliver you from what exactly? Why are you so tired in the first place? Are you possibly one of those people who actively choose to live a life for self, to exhaustion, and then attempt to, quote, use God's grace to perpetuate that lifestyle? Is that you? If that's you, then know that God gives grace to the humble, not the arrogant. Go to James 4.3. James 4.3. The Spirit never seems to tire of this little passage of Scripture. James 4.3. What's your motivation? And how will God respond to those with wrong motives? James 4.3, you ask and do not receive. Yes, it's possible, my friends, to go boldly to the throne of grace, ask and not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, that's why. So that you may spend it on your pleasures, on you, in other words. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture, the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Spirit simply trying to give us all his perspective on things. That's been his goal. He wants you to see it all as truth. He wants you to see the things that he sees. He wants you to see it his way. So that when he convicts you, you confess, homologeo. You say the same thing. You say, that's true. I was right there. I was wrong there. Whatever that may be, he just wants you to be aligned with him. So that you understand the end goal, which is sanctification. If you're in constant disagreement with him, which means you wouldn't confess, then your goals don't align, do they? 
So he's just trying to give us his perspective on so many things. In many ways, we won't grow until this one thing happens in our souls. In other words, until we turn that corner, until we submit to his perspective, until we give up the fleshly perspective that has kept us in bondage for most of us for years in some cases. Up here on the board, what is experiential sanctification? It's his perspective, his gospel is what becomes our sanctification. A religious person will tell you, oh, well, I'll do this, I'll do that, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. That's not sanctification. That's you being a religious idiot. He's trying to give you his perspective. He wants you to fully embrace the gospel. I like to say living the gospel reality. That's what becomes us. That's our sanctification. It's us being sanctified. As the Spirit reminded us on, thir- or on Sunday, in light of God sanctifying, sanctifying us, we are witnesses as well. Let me give you the Amplified in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight in the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, love that phrase, so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence with the the race or the race that is set before us. Verse 2 in the Amplified, looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. So think about it. We just need to focus on remaining humble, on being humble, Not trying to prove to the world that you're humble. Not the aw shucks, put your toe in the sand, humble. Being humble, which is something that goes on in the heart. Something that exists between you and God. Because God sees the heart, God's not fooled. Humility cannot be faked. We might say it this way. Again, we're still emerging. These are borrowed principles, some of them, from previous lessons. Humility in the supernatural life. Living and being are synonyms, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, living and being. God gives grace through faith to the humble. For example, peace, a life of gratitude, contentment, etc., etc. These are the gifts that are given to the humble. If you focus too long on doing... You never become anything except the religious expert. Doing is always a result of being first. Doing is always a result of being first. Our focus is meant to be then on being, isn't it? That's what the Bible says. Being humble first and then being all the wonderful things God has earmarked us to be by grace through faith. 
That's how it happens. So while our focus is on being, we aren't focusing the issue, or if we aren't focusing, the issue is arrogance. So please ponder your perspectives, for that's what the Spirit's been trying to give you, his perspective, so that this stuff makes sense. Let's read David's humble words for some encouragement. Go to Psalm 103, verse 1. This is David, who often is our case study for humility. I'm going to use that language on purpose, because there's many times where David did do things out of humility, out of context in his own life that would make no sense whatsoever for us. So we shouldn't make sort of hardwired doctrines out of David's life. Psalm 103.1 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Just look at David's heart here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, thank God, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him." As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What a wonderful heart to examine in David. And just by the way, I have another book to recommend for you all, since we're talking about this journey called life, since we're talking about experiential sanctification and getting very practical about it over the past year almost now. If you haven't already read it, this is the book, but this one's down the list in terms of priority. It's really for those who might be looking for a little extra perspective and maybe are fast readers, I don't know, but it's called The Pilgrim's Progress 
by John Bunyan. Uh, it's a wonderful book, uh, sort of parable format uh, in terms of this individual going through the throes of life, being challenged, uh, you know, being excited about stepping forward, passing certain tests, this, that, and the other. I don't want to give it away, but it's a wonderful read for all of us. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress, again, by John Bunyan. And by the way, if I've got this book and several others listed as recommendations on our publications page. So The Pilgrim's Progress is about a journey. And if we think about it, life is a journey, isn't it? I mean, life is just this beautiful journey. I had someone describe it to me recently, and I loved it. They call it a working vacation. It's a wonderful thing to think about that way. So life is a journey, and I say to you, learn to love the process. Learn to love the process. I mean, you're alive, right? You're breathing propane, but you're still breathing some oxygen, <laughs> right? So learn to love the process. We'll all have a good laugh over this someday, right? Remember that time when DJ tried to knock me out with propane? He was saying he's lighting like a tea thing in the back, but he was really just trying to knock me out because he wanted to go home early. Remember that time? Yeah. <laughs> Humility in the supernatural life. It's only that person with a humble attitude of surrender that receives the utmost grace of God in his experience. It's the humble person that lives by faith, Romans 1.17, making that life righteous in the eyes of God, for every perfect gift is from above, James 1.17. As we've noted so many times in the past, the great litmus test, of course, is love. Up here on the board, another borrowed principle on practical sanctification, the very foundation of our spiritual life is progressively grounded in love. Ephesians 3.17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. The very foundation of our spiritual life is progressively grounded in love. We might even say this in conclusion, after reading so many passages on this topic, there is no sanctification in the absence of love. I mean, Paul says that, right? If I don't have, what, 1 Corinthians 13? If I don't have love, I can do all these amazing things, supposedly. If I don't have love, I'm just a clanging symbol. I'm nothing. I've got nothing if I don't have love. So how do you suspect that you'd ever be sanctified if not in love? So there is no sanctification in the absence of love. I want to read an article. I've been meaning to read this for a very long time. It's just been pushed off time and again. Uh, you can sit back. Uh, it's by Pastor John MacArthur. Uh, and it really dovetails into a 100-plus part series that we began last year. So sit back and relax. It's got some length to it. But again, it's worthwhile to read. It's called The Steps of Biblical Sanctification by John MacArthur. You probably hear a lot about God's sanctifying work. This is him. You probably hear a lot about God's sanctifying work in your life through his word. But what does that process look like? How do you know if the living truth of scripture is actually at work in your life? How do you know that God's word is actually 
taken root in your life to help you understand your own spiritual growth and how God's work, word works in your life, I want to highlight the key steps in the process of sanctification with three simple words. The first is cognition. God's pattern for spiritual growth starts with understanding what the Bible says and what it means. The meaning of the scripture is the scripture. If you don't know what it means, you don't have the truth. So the process of spiritual growth starts with understanding what the Bible says. Many years ago, as a child, the importance of knowing and understanding God's Word was impressed upon me. I began to read my Bible repetitiously, day after day, over and over. The further I went, the more connections I was able to draw from book to book. After a few years, I was overwhelmed with the understanding that the Bible is its own interpreter. And you can see that conviction borne out in my teaching to this day. True sanctification begins with renewing your mind. You must know the truth, plain and simple. There's no premium on ignorance in sanctification. You're not going to get there through some emotional or mystical experience. Spiritual growth won't happen by osmosis. It requires the discipline of constantly putting God's truth in your mind. Don't confuse childlike faith with childish thinking. There are no shortcuts in sanctification. A lack of biblical knowledge will always retard your spiritual growth. Apart from the truth of Scripture, there simply is no mechanism to restrain your sinful flesh. Legalism can't do it. Pragmatism can't either. The same goes for mysticism and sacramentalism. So on cognition, the only certain method for true spiritual growth starts with absorbing God's eternal truth. Cognition leads to a second step, conviction. As you grow in your understanding of the Bible, you begin to develop convictions out of that understanding. Those convictions or beliefs determine how you live, or at least how you endeavor to live. As God's truth takes over your mind, it produces principles that you do not desire to violate. That's sanctification. It's the transformation of your heart and your will that compels you to obey God's word. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about the persecution and threats he faced on a daily basis. Every day presented a new danger to him, a new plot to silence his preaching, and a new threat to his life. In verse 11, he says he and his companions were, quote, constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. There was never a time when he wasn't in danger for preaching God's truth. Why would he live a life that invited that kind of persecution? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 13-14. He says, But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Quote, I believe, therefore I spoke. 
As far as Paul was concerned, he didn't have any other options. His belief in the Lord compelled him to preach the truth in spite of the dangers he faced. That's conviction. John Bunyan, who wrote that book I just recommended, John Bunyan spent 12 years in jail, but it wasn't the stone and the steel that held him there. He could have gone free if he simply agreed to stop preaching. Instead, he wrote, quote, If nothing will do unless I make of my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, unless putting out my own eyes I commit me to the blind to lead me, I have determined the Almighty God being my help and shield yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on mine eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and principles, end quote. His convictions wouldn't allow him to compromise, no matter the cost. When you read the Bible, you're not just trying to know it academically. You're studying the Word of God to develop a set of convictions that rule your life, inform your conscience, and guide you toward greater Christ-likeness. So on conviction, biblical truth is established in your mind through cognition. That same truth guides your life through conviction. And then the third step in the biblical process of sanctification is affection. Affection. Throughout Scripture, we see over and over that God's people truly love His truth. As David says in Psalm 19, the word of God is, quote, more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb, end quote. Take some time in the next few days and read through Psalm 119, keeping track of all the times David says he loves and delights in the law of the Lord. Loving God's word is an inescapable theme throughout the Psalms. And it's an attitude that will be reflected in the process of our sanctification. If you're truly growing spiritually, you don't read the Bible as mere education. You don't read it as a curiosity meant simply for intellectual stimulation. You don't study it just to win an argument. You don't approach it casually or carelessly, and you don't flippantly disregard its truth. If you're truly growing, you come to Scripture eager for the spiritual nourishment it alone provides. Just as Peter wrote, quote, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow. 1 Peter 2, 2. So on affection, your affection and hunger for God's truth will be insatiable, and nothing will keep you from it. And finally, he says, but you won't truly love God's word if it's not already shaping the way you live. And it can't shape the way you live if you don't know it. That's why any methods or patterns for spiritual growth that don't start with the study of God's truth cannot lead you to true sanctification. Again, that's from the steps of biblical sanctification by John MacArthur. You probably know why I enjoy uh, reading much of his work the way I do. So much of the way that he presents things 
and the way that he's been teaching his own congregation uh, is a lot like what the Spirit's been doing here. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing to learn. It's very encouraging. But, as I've cautioned you many times in the past, please do not make a doctrine out of what I just read. People are like, oh, did you say three steps? <laughs> yes, one, two, three. This is so easy, the spiritual life. Oh, cognition, conviction, affection. Oh, I got it. Spiritual life. Please don't do that. Don't do that. While I'm convinced that everything I just read to you is absolutely true, it's still only one man's description of sanctification. If you want to truly understand sanctification in your life, focus on reading your Bibles. You know, just like that man just said. What did he say? I just kept reading it over and over and over and made connections. I've said the same thing a multitude of times to you. I've tried to encourage you for a very long time now. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Which brings us to another really critical point of understanding. At this juncture, I'd like to use an analogy to drive it home. Relative to your sanctification, this is just an analogy. Two flower gardens may have the same count and type of flowers, but they are never the same. Why? They're in different shade. They're at different angles. They're in different soil. They have different bees and birds and worms and weeds and everything else. They may have the same number of roses and dandelions and lilies. You may plant them the same day, but they're never the same. They're never exactly the same. No two believers, though equally magnificent in their sanctification, are ever identical by grace through faith. Embrace your sanctification and love it. What he's doing with you, from my perspective, is phenomenal. It's wonderful to see you all growing in your own ways. I hear about it. I always appreciate people sharing those things with me. Um, but it's beautiful. It's only not beautiful when, when I see someone trying to be somebody else. When I see someone dissatisfied with their own lot. That's heartbreaking to me because they're missing the point. The point is that he's sanctifying you. He gave you your life. He gives you the breath. You're here tonight. You were spoke from eternity past. You personally were supposed to be in this room with all the propane. Feel good, right? It was like, yeah, I love this. God loves me. Right? You're supposed to be here tonight. Just remember that. And everybody came from a different walk, right? Everybody was doing something different before they got here. Embrace your sanctification and learn to love it. Here's something to reflect on just to drive the point home. Ever heard of any man ever being able to fully empathize with his wife during childbirth? Ever heard that? It's impossible for that to happen because men can't have children. And even if they could, their experience would be somehow different. 
Nobody's childbirth has ever been the same. Yet God says that neither the father nor the mother are better than each other. Just different by his own perfect design. It's one of the reasons I literally, not kind of, not sort of, literally seething hate modern feminism. Why? It's because the underlying message is that women should be treated equal to men. But that's impossible. This is impossible, literally, because women aren't men. I know some are trying, but they're not men. Praise the Lord. Most women I know that have their heads screwed on straight say, I would never want to be a man. And most men I know would say, I'd never want to be a woman. Ain't that a beautiful thing? Living out our own genders? There's a thought for you. I have equal distaste for, I don't even know what to call it, whatever we might call today's average man trying to be equal with women. I don't know what to call that. Is there a term for that? I don't know. Whatever the opposite is, manism? Feminism? Man, maleism? No? Nobody's with me? Moving on. The point is that men will never be equal to women for one simple reason. Because they aren't women. We're not equal. Get over it. God designed it that way. Men are equal to women. Women aren't equal to men. Neither one's better. But they're certainly not equal. So let's stop trying to be equal. Let's stop living our own lives. Let's say God created me this way. Back to our point. Two flower gardens may have the same count and type of flowers, but they are never the same. Two, no two believers, though equally magnificent in their sanctification, are ever identical by grace through faith. Embrace your sanctification and love it. If God decided in eternity past to plant the flower garden called you, isn't there enough in there to love uniquely? I hope you realize that God's gift to you, through me, even your pastor, is that you understand these things. This is, what, this is his gift to you. He's saying, listen, I didn't screw up. I didn't mess up when I created you. I didn't mess up when I made you the way you are. Healthy, unhealthy, short, tall, stout, scrawny. Who cares? Smart, dumb, box of rocks. Who cares? Honestly, who cares? Sometimes, I'm telling you right now, what did Solomon say? Sometimes being intelligent is painful. Not that I would, I'm claiming a stake to it. You're staking a claim to it. I'm just saying, everybody's got something to be grateful for. And it's, you miss that if you're trying to be someone else. You miss this whole idea of sanctification if you're trying to be someone else, if you're dissatisfied with your own lot in life. So do yourself a favor. Throw out all the undermining chatter from the world on the subject of you. I've taught that many, many times. None of your business what anyone else thinks of you. It's none of your business what anyone else thinks of you. Throw it out. The only opinion that matters in this world is God's. You know, the same one who made you. And you're here tonight. 
And so he's pleased. Your creator. So throw out all the undermining chatter from the world on the subject of you. This is a major part of the good work that the Spirit's been doing in each of you through this pulpit even. Go to Ephesians 4.12. Ephesians 4.12. This is so much of this good work he's been doing, my friends. He just feel, almost feels like he's saying, just shake it out. <sighs> I'm not there yet. Are you there yet? Nobody in here is there yet. Paul didn't make it. Paul! He said, I don't know. I'm still doing stuff I don't want to do. I ain't doing stuff I want to do. Something's messed up. <laughs> so, hey, that's the way it is. Ephesians 4.12 For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the what? The building up of itself in love. In love. Listen, folks, if, you're, if you can't love your own life and love what he's doing in your life, how is that going to accomplish that goal? What are you doing to that huge goal, the building up of the body in itself in love? If you're one dissatisfied customer, sounds like the antithesis of what he's trying to do in his body. To synthesize much of our 100-plus series, part series to date up here on the board, Again, these are big concepts. They seem like I'm waxing poetic, you know, and I'm trying to be all snazzy like you can put an eagle on it in some mountains and be like, freedom is the result of love and go sell it on Etsy, you know what I mean, and make some money with it. No, I'm not, this isn't Pastor Red waxing anything. This is where we've arrived. 100, what, 106, I think. This is part 106, right? I should know, right? A hundred and six parts. And this is where he's got us. All that work. How many, I mean, thousands of scriptures. Thousands, not hundreds. Thousands of scripture we've been through in the last, since we reloaded the gospel back in September. Freedom is the result of love. not hard, but it's true. Freedom is the result of love. As I've taught you in the past, once you're free, you're free to serve others. That's the magnificent thing. That's the litmus test. You know you have His love when your base desire is to serve others. 
If it's to serve self still, you're not there yet. You're just getting it there. But you know you're getting it. You're starting to get it when your base desire is to serve others. Because that's Christ's heart. Once you're free, you're free to serve others. Conversely stated then, if you're not free, you can only serve self. Let me put it this way, as a visual. On freedom, a person locked up in a prison cell by themselves can only serve themselves. There's nobody else there. A person locked up in a prison cell by themselves can only serve themselves. So selfish love dominates. However, a man set free from prison is free to serve others. Where selfless love dominates. That's all he's trying to do. Read Galatians 5. He's saying, look, I, I sent my son to set you free. It was for freedom that he set you free. Don't be a slave again. Don't put yourself in a, in a prison cell. A self-induced one nonetheless, where the only person to serve is you, that's bondage. A person locked up in prison cell by themselves can only serve themselves. Selfish love dominates. However, a man set free from prison is free to serve others. Selfless love dominates. Paul taught this many years ago. Go to Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13. Almost time to close. Galatians 5.13, in light of the point in the board. <clears throat> For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You've been set free to serve. And you know that you're enjoying your freedom, which is a function of being sanctified, being set apart for God's holy purposes, when your, your base desire is to love others and serve them. That's how you know. I mean, there's nothing else a pastor can teach a congregation like this. I'm not going to tell you how to love somebody. I'm not going to tell you how to serve somebody. I leave that up to the religious folks. I'm not going to tell you how to be sanctified. I'm not going to tell you what it means to love. I know what it means to me. I know how it flows through me. But who am I to tell you how it works in your life? I'm not about to stand before you and be so arrogant and suppose that I know how that's going to work. All I know is what Scripture says. You've been set free to serve. And when that becomes a base desire of yours, you know that you've got your hand on Christ's love because that's exactly what He was. I mean, God is love. Christ is God. Christ is love. Jesus was love. What did He do? He served. I hope you see what the Spirit's doing here. He's saying in a nutshell that Christ has set you free from the bondage of self-serving and that the real joy and contentment in living, the real joy and contentment in living is in serving others. 
That's what the Bible says. Don't take my word for it. That's what the Bible says. You want joy, you want peace, you want happiness, you want contempt. You want all these wonderful transcendent gifts. Things that people would give their entire life savings for if they were honest. If they could have it. These are the things that you get when you love, when you're sanctified, when you begin serving others with a good Christ-like heart. So I want you to concentrate. I've got a couple of minutes left. Step way back now and think about God's plan for the ages. I'm, I'm saying we're in the weeds, then we're on your life. Now elevate. God's not bound by the construct of time. Go way up. What about God's plan for the ages? Think about that now. If he wanted to create a bunch of shut-ins, he would have. If he wanted to create a bunch of self-serving creatures, he would have. But he didn't, did he? Nope. Think of this. God created each of us with a capacity to love and an innate desire to be loved. For either of these things to be satisfied at any level, we must engage with others, beginning with the one who created us. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 God created each of us with a capacity to love and an innate desire to be loved. For either of these things to be satisfied at any level, we must engage with others. Think about that. If you're in a prison cell, how do you give another person your love? You're going to fall in love with the concrete wall? Maybe. Maybe you're like Wilson. Remember Castaway, Tom Hanks, anybody? Soccer ball. Wilson! No? I'm just killing it tonight. What are you going to do if you're in a prison cell? Who are you going to love? But yet your desire, you have this capacity to love. Who doesn't want to love another person? Who, doesn't, who disagrees that we have an innate desire to be loved? Anybody? Our first reservation, our first seat at the table is with God. Satan's going to try to rob you. That's my best. I don't have long eyelashes. That's a girl flirting with a guy. Right? Whatever, you know. Look at me. Mm -hmm. Macho man. Whatever attracts you, ladies, right? Whatever. I don't care. Satan's going to push these other things in there, these counterfeits. This is true love. Sex. Go have sex. That's true love. Oh, yay, yay. No, that's not true love. That's a counterfeit. True love begins with the one who created you with those capacities, with those faculties, with the ability, this innate desire to be loved. And then he says, I'm going to blow your socks off. If you wait for me, I'm going to blow your socks off. I love you. But Johnny, no, shh, Johnny's an idiot. Sally, Sally's an idiot. Keep my, I got 
sailor's tongue sometimes, so excuse me. All right? These people are awful compared to me. I created you. I love you. Do you understand that? Most Christians would be like, no, nah, I don't. They'll say they do. Oh, God loves me. He's got your son. Do you actually understand that? Do you have a real relationship with your creator, with Abba, Father? So much so that your day starts and ends with him. So much so that he's the anchor of your whole life. That everything that's good about you, you know came from him. And you live in this life of gratitude and thanksgiving. You know, like 1 Thessalonians 5. And you pray always, same passage, without ceasing. When you are sanctified that way, life is good. That's what He wants for us. And by the way, not that I have to say this, but Satan hates, not kind of, not sort of, hates the point on the board, despises it wholly because it is a complete indictment on who and what he and his children stand for. Hates it. Hates this point on the board. Doesn't want you to realize how simple it is. Doesn't want you to realize that God created you so that he could love you, so that you could fall in love with him. Doesn't want you to believe that. He wants to send in counterfeits. His love. No, it's not. Some gaylord on a horse with long hair. <laughs> Fabio! Cut your hair. Queer. <laughs> Should I close? See what happens? It's the propane! It's not my fault! It's the propane! Oh, yeah. I get that one pass. Anyways, just know that God created you to love and be loved. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.